2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. Stocks are ending the week in a foul mood and escalating war wars with China and a new consulate closure by Beijing, partly to blame for the Friday fade. The 10-year Treasury yield sliding back towards just half a percent will have the very latest. Text Friday tumble is also weighing on the markets. Intel shares are getting absolutely crushed today with one top analyst calling the stock virtually uninvestable. Competitors AMD and Taiwan Semi are feasting on Intel's chip fumble. So what's next, we'll ask. And the desire to live in cities may be down thanks to COVID. But will the exodus really last? Plus, if you thought a sub 3% mortgage was a huge deal, now something even huger is on the way. Let's begin, though, with today's moves in the bond market. The 10-year hitting the lowest level since early March. Over to Rick Santelli for more on that, Rick.
3: Yes, you're absolutely right, Kelly. Look at a one-week chart of tens. You see how close to 54 basis points we're getting? The reason I'm alluding to 54 is because today was the lowest intraday trade since the 9th of March, which was the day we made the all-time yield close. At 54 basis points. And it's affecting everything, including the yield curve, obviously. Tens minus twos are going to have the tightest, the smallest weekly close if it stays here at 43 basis points since the first Friday of May. So going way back, and that, of course, affects banks. If you look at what's going on overseas, same scenario. Look at a 24 hour chart of boon yields. They were trading within a whisker of minus 50 basis points. They haven't closed below that level since mid May. Excuse me, mid-March. Now, if we look at what's going on in currencies, it's all about the euro strength. Euro versus dollar, best level in nearly two years. Dollar index at the worst level in nearly two years. And maybe this chart should really have some impact. The euro is now at a six-year high against the Chinese offshore yuan. And that, of course, shows the strength in some of the new programs they're designing and the budget they ended up with recently, which is all very big progress. And if we consider that, Three-year, five-year, and seven-year, should they close right where they're at, would be new all-time yield low closes. Kelly, back to you.
2: Rick, my lingering question is why now? For all of these sinking bond yields, why now?
3: Well, I think part of this is what's going on overseas and the kind of catch-up trade as the Eurozone in particular is trying to get – and wrap their arms around the coronavirus in a stimulative way that is putting even more pressure on purchases of sovereign debt like treasuries. But I also think that there is just a natural buying propensity. Now, stocks are closing down for the week in all three indices, but they're still at lofty levels. The treasuries and sovereigns are probably the only hedge investors have against anything going wrong in their equity positions.
2: Yeah, fair point. Rick, thank you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli with the latest there. Now to tensions with China as the U.S. is ordered to close one of its consulates there. And Secretary of State Pompeo continues to throw verbal haymakers. Kayla Tausche is here with the very latest.
4: Kayla? Kelly overnight, a diplomatic tit for tat with China announcing that it would close a U.S. consulate in Chengdu. The U.S. has five consulates in China and one embassy in Beijing. Chengdu is a critical city, though, because it is the westernmost outpost that the U.S. has, and it serves as sort of a hub to access Central Asia. But the foreign ministry, uh, in a statement, called the U.S.'s decision to close its consulate in Houston unilateral provocation and says that this was a legitimate and necessary retaliation in response. This comes after, last night, the, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, delivered a speech at the Nixon Library, a symbolic backdrop, because it was under President Nixon that the U.S. and China ushered in this modern era of relations. But Pompeo minced no words accusing China of new tyranny and said that they are asserting themselves on a global stage outside of China.
5: The truth is that our policies and those of other free nations resurrected China's failing economy only to see Beijing bite the international hands that were feeding it.
4: China responded by a foreign ministry spokesperson saying that Pompeo is likened to an ant trying to shake a tree and urging the U.S. to shake what it calls a Cold War mentality. Kelly.
2: They always have the most colorful analogies. An ant trying to shake a tree doesn't disappoint. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche with the very latest there. Let's move on to markets where for the first time in a month, the Dow and the S&P are on track for a down week. The Nasdaq also struggling, and that comes on the cusp of big earnings week for tech. Is the market's recovery rally about to be tested big time? Joining me now are Barry James, president of James Investment Research, and Troy Gajewski is co-chief investment officer at SkyBridge. It's great to have you both here. So, Barry, I'll start with you. You had been telling us for weeks now that you favor a cautious position on the market. Um, What is your latest thinking?
5: Well, it's it's no different, (laughs) Kelly. Um, I'm looking at this as kind of uh, the yellow brick road, if you will. Uh, There's a a wizard behind a curtain, and that's uh, Jerome Powell pumping out money. And, And everything else is almost irrelevant with that amount of money coming in. And so the, the you know market doesn't have a brain it's just going it doesn't care that there're big losses uh, it doesn't have a heart but it does have some courage to just keep keep plugging ahead earnings are coming in better than expected and that's good but they're still terrible right now you have this trade flare up possibly trade flare up with uh, with China and uh, as as we look at the market you know it's come so far so fast that it is due for for a bit of a pause here but I would say stay with the yellow brick road don't get too far off of it, because that's probably what's going to work well for folks.
2: And you're still favoring names like Helen of Troy, Microsoft, and Google, and we can circle back to that. But sure, I want to bring you in and mention the latest Chase card spending data. After we got the jobless claims yesterday that were a disappointment, the Chase spending data today shows a five-week low. So some of the high-frequency data are, are stalling out here. Is that changing your investment process?
6: Yeah, so we agree with that in that, look, a lot of this rally has been driven by Fed policy, and clearly the Fed balance sheet stopped expanding the last five weeks. In turn, money supply growth has stopped expanding as well, and you're at you know 21.7 times earnings for uh, 2021 because markets are basically looking through 2020. And what you've seen in more high-frequency data, as you say, is as we get more flare-ups across the country, and there's real angst about what the next fiscal stimulus package will look like you started to see the real-time data deteriorate. And and the the good news, though, is that the economy never deteriorated much as people feared, and it's obviously snapped back far more. But the road from here is certainly going to be rockier, and it's not going to be a straight one-way trade as it was from really mid-March through the beginning of June.
2: Why, Troy, do you generally favor credit uh, as opposed to equities here?
6: Yeah, so right now, if you look at where equity multiples are, they, you, the s and P's up on the year. So they've retraced more than the loss that we had or, or, from, or where they were starting on the year. Sorry, not quite the loss from the peak, but pretty darn close. If you look at credit strategies right now, particularly credit strategies tied to the real economy, like housing, which is on fire, as you know. It's bounced back more than the other sector in the real economy. Um, we think the metrics look very good. Forbearance requests never got as bad as people feared and have already started to come down. Um, and spreads are still extremely wide compared to where they were in early March. If you look at distressed corporate credit, another area of our focus, you know, even though the economy never deteriorated as much as people thought and it's come back faster, expectations are still for two to $300 billion of corporate defaults. And it's not just going to be in energy like it was in 15, 16. There's going to be a lot tied to leisure, to a lesser extent retail, yeah. even in healthcare. So when we think of risk reward, if you're trying to generate a high single digit or low teens return, it, the, the math is there. We, we have an 8% yield in our portfolio. We, think we have meaningful room for spread, tightening. Yeah. And so we think on a risk-reward basis, particularly versus bonds and high yield, it's a great place to be.
2: Barry, we have this stat here that we've heard a lot about lately. The market caps of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft are 26% of the S&P 500. And so I'm surprised to see you saying that Microsoft and Google are among the, the names that you favor here.
5: Well, (laughs) Kelly, the yellow brick road, stay on the yellow brick road. What's been working is probably likely to keep working. Every time I've started to get off of that yellow brick road into something as small or value, snap, 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 snap. (laughs) It's coming at me and it isn't pretty. And I can tell you right now, this year, the six months ending in June, the best value stocks are down over 20%. The worst value stocks are actually up with the with the average stock down around 12 percent, hmm. so you've got this unusual period of time. Uh, they have good earnings. You know, Microsoft that uh, just came out with earnings. They're solid. Uh, it's got you know the Azure and the Teams and all of those and the Halo. Uh, you know, holding in there. And of course the the. Uh, you know, the search market is, uh, you know, not locked down by, by Google and, and YouTube. And, Helen, of Troy, I really like. It's the company. You own their products, but you don't know its name. Right. Uh, you have Braun, Revlon, Infusium, Sure, Pure, Oxo, you've got their stuff in your house. And uh, their earnings came out up 22%. Even in this time of COVID. So some pretty good some pretty good names and they've been doing well and we think they'll continue doing well.
2: Yeah, I'm sticking to the yellow brick road. Thank you both. We appreciate it today. Barry James and Troy Thank Gajewski so talking us through these markets. Got a newsletter on McDonald's, Kate Rogers joining us. Kate, what's happening?
7: Hey, Kelly. Well, McDonald's joining other big retailers and restaurants, including Starbucks and Walmart, and requiring uh, its customers to come in with facial coverings. The company also saying it's adding protective panels to front and back of house. And most importantly, it's pausing its dining room reopenings for an additional 30 days. Now, remember, in the beginning of July, it said it was going to take a three-week beat. See what happened with COVID. It's now extending that pause for another 30 days, some 2,200 of its locations in terms of in-store dining were open at the beginning of the month uh, for people to come in and eat, but now they're taking a pause on approving any additional reopenings. Kelly, back yeah. over to you. Speaking
2: of kind of this stall uh, that we're seeing of late, Kate, thank you. Let's get to shares of Moderna now, which are still sliding today after the company lost a patent challenge on vaccine technology. We're down about 3%. Meg Terrell joins me with those details. Meg?
8: Hi, Kelly. Well, this is a pretty fascinating story, particularly given the situation we're in with Moderna developing one of the front runner candidates for a vaccine for COVID 19 amid this pandemic. Uh, so, what happened was a patent uh, court uh, decided, or the, the patent office decided, that this patent that Moderna was challenging over delivery technology for mRNA. Uh, medicines uh, was, uh, in fact, valid. So Moderna lost that challenge to a small company called Arbutus, uh, which holds the patent, and that sent shares of this company uh, more than doubling this week. Uh, Arbutus is still uh, less than $500 million market cap here, so a very volatile stock. Moderna's stock down 23% this week uh, on this news. Uh, Lyrink saying that, quote, this decision opens the door to a fascinating and likely protracted period of investor controversy and debate around the implications of any potential infringement of claims by Arbutus regarding Moderna's use of this delivery technology. So the question becomes, uh, can Arbutus uh and actually they've licensed this technology to another company called Genevant a uh, challenge the uh Moderna uh patent to get royalties Moderna says quote it's not aware of any significant intellectual property impediments for any products they intend to commercialize including mRNA1273 which is their vaccine uh Kelly now I've reached out to Genevant which would make the decision on this they are a private company and I literally just heard back from them right before I came on air with you they said it's not company policy to comment on ongoing an ongoing dispute. They say they look forward to the development of a safe and effective vaccine for patients. So I hope I didn't make that too complex. But essentially what it means is there could be a royalty dispute over this vaccine, which some speculate could potentially hold up its development. But Hmm. Moderna says they don't believe that will happen.
2: I was going to say that's probably the only way that the public is, is going to snap to attention is if it would potentially hold up that development. And it sounds like we can't totally rule that
8: out. It sounds like we can't rule it out based on the way analysts are looking at this, but Moderna, for its part, says it doesn't think it has any impediments. And as far as it believes you know, this, this patent decision was an error, they say they may further pursue the matters uh, legally. But this will be something ongoing and something to continue to watch.
2: All right, Meg, thank you, as always, bringing us the very latest, especially in this case, as Moderna shares slide nearly 4 percent. Coming up, it's another day and another bad headline for big tech. Amazon reportedly met with companies and then stole their pitches. More fodder for those who want to break up the tech giants. We're going to ask a former FTC commissioner to weigh in. Plus, record low mortgage rates sound great if you're in the market for a home. But at what point does it become a profit problem for the banks? We have some answers ahead. And as we head to break, take a look at the major sectors today. As we hit session lows on the market, every sector, all 11 of them, are in the red. Technology and healthcare, the biggest laggards. We're back in two.
9: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
10: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. The congressional hearing slated for Monday with the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google will likely now be postponed for a couple of weeks. And the antitrust momentum continues to build. Yesterday, we learned that Apple is the target of a multi-state consumer protection probe. Today, The Wall Street Journal is out with a sweeping report that Amazon appeared to use its investment and deal-making process just to launch comparable products that would, in some cases, destroy potential competitors. With me now is William Kovacic. He's former chairman of the Federal Trade Commission and a law Professor at George Washington University. It's great to have you here. You know, how do you, what kind of case do you see coming together against the big tech giants, if any, here?
10: I think there's a strong chance that by the end of the calendar year and maybe as soon as September, we're going to see two or three major cases being run collectively by the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission or the state governments. One type of case will probably focus on how platforms are using their position as gatekeepers to determine how third parties compete against them. Another type of case will look at the extent to which in presenting information, they present information in a way that favors their own products. And another type of case will look at the extent to which they use acquisitions as a technique to forestall the emergence of independent competitors. So there's a very good chance that by the end of this calendar year and sooner, we're going to see big cases running against several of these companies.
2: And to what end? You know, plenty of people have said there's no consumer harm that you can demonstrate, while others have said, you know, the fact that it's anti-competitive should mean there's some basis for either fines or penalties or other kinds of of effects. I mean, what would it take under law to literally break up these big tech giants if, that, if the government wanted to do so?
10: There's a lot of antitrust technology that's been developed over the decades to make it possible to do it. Our courts have been very skeptical of the application of these remedies and their fear has been that if you intervene in a way that's not really careful and expert, that you're gonna perform surgery that kills the economy. So the effort to obtain a breakup remedy will face a fairly difficult, demanding legal standard. The the purpose of it, I think, basically, will not so much be prices, but will be innovation and quality. The core argument that the government prosecutors will make is that we're not so much worried about price effects, we are worried about how this part of the economy develops over time. Are there opportunities for new products and services? And I think one assumption in bringing the cases is that the simple fact that the policeman is observing and intervening to control bad behavior by itself will have a positive effect and open up some breathing room for other firms to compete effectively.
2: What precedent would you point people to for how this is likely to play out? Are we talking about AT&T? Are we talking about Microsoft? Um, are, are none of those good analogies?
10: Uh, they're both good cases to study. Uh, Microsoft, for example, did not result in a breakup, even though the Department of Justice asked for it. But there is a belief that the simple fact that the government intervened, brought a case and obtained restrictions on conduct, and these were supplemented by restrictions on conduct imposed by the European Union, that it did cause Microsoft to back off in certain ways that allowed other firms to emerge. It's really hard to test this hypothesis without having access to internal company records. But one possibility is that a company like Google emerged in the way it did because Microsoft did not use its platform to try to exclude them. So Microsoft is a useful example to see how the very prosecution of the case, even with conduct remedies, can change the way in which the industry unfolds. AT&T is another good example that shows you that breakups can take place without the destruction of the sector. So. If a federal judge asked me in a case involving the tech giants today, give me an example that a major breakup dealing with a crucial part of the economy be, can be carried out in a successful way that arguably makes things better. If I'm a government prosecutor, I say, let me tell you about at and That's
2: fascinating. For all the sand in the gears we're looking at throwing into these big tech giants, it's amazing the stocks are performing as well as they are. William Kovacic, thank you for your thoughts. We'll check back in soon. We appreciate
10: it. Thanks for the chance to speak today.
2: Sharing his expertise as former chairman of the FTC. Coming up, a closer look at the future of cities. The desire to live in one may be down right now, but my next guest says don't count him out just yet. He'll tell us why. And news of Intel delaying its next generation chips, sending that stock down sharply, 16% today. And the competition soaring. Was Apple right to ditch the chipmaker in favor of its own chips? We'll debate. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are near session lows right now. The Dow selling off nearly 200 points, or three quarters of one percent. It is weighed down by Intel and Apple today. But the uh, Dow is actually the outperformer. The S&P is down about one percent right now, and the Nasdaq is down one and a half percent as technology continues to be one of the worst-performing sectors. Let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update now. Sue,
11: thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The Toronto Blue Jays will play their home games in Buffalo in the stadium usually used by the Blue Jays' AAA minor league team. The Canadian government would not let them play in Toronto due to the pandemic. Even though cases of the coronavirus continue to rise in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott insists the state can continue its reopening.
1: Eighty-five percent of Texans agree that face mask is a way that we can go about keeping businesses open without having to shut down. I made very clear we do not want to shut down again. The only way we can go about the process of not shutting down is for people to embrace this process of wearing a face mask.
11: And along those lines, Dr. Anthony Fauci telling The Washington Post that states with rising cases don't need to go all the way back to a complete shutdown, but should pause reopening or even consider, quote, backing up a bit. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Kel, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very
2: much. Sue Herrera. As the number of COVID-19 cases does continue to rise across the country, many are wondering what that could mean for the future of big cities as populations leave for the suburbs, taking their tax dollars with them. For more on how the pandemic is reshaping urban communities, I'm joined by Richard Florida. He's a professor at the University of Toronto School of Cities and Rothman School of Management. Uh, It's great to have you here, sir. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: I especially, I mean, you've been such a thought leader in this space of over the last couple of decades. And I know that you're not quite as downbeat uh, on on big cities as many of the rest of, of of us are, frankly. Tell me why you don't see this as pointing towards a major headwind uh, for big cities for the next generation or so.
1: Well, big cities, suburbs, rural areas and the countries are all going to face the major headwind for a while. But You know, I I spent the time uh, in lockdown reading the history of infectious disease and pandemics. And, you know, before there were antiviral therapies or antibiotics or modern public health, cities have survived far, far, far worse pandemics. So this force of urbanization, which causes people to get together in cities, to build businesses, to build communities, that increases our productivity and, and drives innovation is a far greater force than this infectious disease, so, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, people are not just going to decamp and fracture everywhere. Uh, cities will survive.
2: I take your point about the pandemic, but I'm thinking more about the analogy to the 70s and 80s when you had kind of a similar a uh, political regime that was bent on, you know, making sure that the police didn't have too much power on different cultural movements where, I mean, I'm just again, thinking of some of the images in Portland and some of the other big cities right now, there's it's not just the pandemic. You know, there's a number of things happening culturally that make me wonder whether a lot of people are going to leave the cities for what they perceive as the better environment that the suburbs offer.
1: Well, one thing is for sure: the United States is getting racked by this stuff. I'm talking to you from Toronto, where none of this is happening. Uh, Toronto is just a safe, decent, reasonable place to live, and I think you can say the same thing about most European cities. So, the United States is a set of issues that have long vexed urban areas since the time I was a little kid. You know, schools that are a problem, crime and violence that are a problem, too many guns in the society that are a problem, a legacy of racial and class injustice that we've got to deal with. That said. Um, there, this is a really different time than the 60s. You know, I was a kid in the 60s. I lived in Newark during the riots. Um, cities were on the downswing. Industry and business were moving to the suburbs. Affluent people were moving to the suburbs. The past 20 years, cities have been in the upswing. Companies have been moving to the cities. Headquarters have been moving to the cities. Even high-tech companies have been moving to the cities. So my hunch is, you know, once we get out of this, another six months or a year, things will settle down and our cities will just be fine. I think, I think we leap too far in the middle of crisis to this kind of dystopia, everything's falling apart. Look, if our cities fall apart, if New York and San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago fall apart, good luck putting America back together.
2: Sure, but again, we have lived through a period like this. You know, the 60s, 70s, and 80s were a period of struggle for the cities and of flourishing for the suburbs, so it's, it's in our recent history that we've lived through this and could experience it again. When you have commercial real estate booms in a lot of these suburban and exurban areas because companies are trying to, you know, find some temp what might be temporary now but could become more permanent arrangement, they're actually following their population centers now out of the big cities. And it just seems to me that that could have some legs to it.
1: So here, here's what I think will happen. I think that what we're seeing is families moving to the suburbs which they've been doing since the 1950s. When you have a kid or two, when you look at the expense of living in the city and look at the difficulty of setting up schooling in the United States, differently than Europe, differently than Canada, you move to the Burbs. So what the pandemic has done is taken family formation moves that might have been made over the next one, two, three, four, five years and compressed them into one, two, three months. But if you're a 23-year-old kid, 24-year-old kid, 25-year-old kid out of undergraduate school or graduate school, You're not going to live in mom's basement for long, and you're not going to the suburbs to live in a single-family home. You're heading for New York or San Francisco or L.A. or Atlanta, wherever the opportunity is, because you have to build a personal network. You want to find some good friends to be around. You want to find a mate, and those people are in cities. So I think our cities are going to get younger. More families are going to go to the verge, and I think the big opportunity is to build our suburbs better, you know. One of the things that really galls me is this ridiculous long commute that we all, and, and it's the thing people hate the most. You ask people what they hate the most, it's the long commute. Yeah. And half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour on a train or a, plane, or a train or a bus or a car. Yeah, if you're lucky. We can create offices in the burbs, and we can create more housing in the cities. We can rebalance our regions. They call it a 15-minute neighborhood where you live, work, and play. And I think we can build our suburbs and our cities better.
2: Well We'll leave it on that hopeful note. We really appreciate it today. Thank you, Richard, Florida.
1: Hey, thank you, guys. We're in for a long haul, but we'll make it.
2: All right. Professor at the University of Toronto and some thoughts on what might happen with both the cities and the suburbs in the near future. Meanwhile, we have some pains and gains in the chip sector today. Defaults plaguing Amex and Boston Beer's earnings boom. All that and more is ahead in today's edition of Rapid Fire. And that's right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. To close out this week, it is time for Rapid Fire. Here are Kate Rogers, Mike Santoli, and Deirdre Bosa to break down the headlines for us. And we have to start with Intel today. Just an incredible move, one of the worst declines the company's had in two decades. We're down about 16 percent. That was despite posting an earnings beat, but they gave weaker-than-expected guidance, a warning on full-year margins, a delay to the next-generation chips. Uh, Rivals AMD and Taiwan Semi, as you can see there, are surging on this news. So it's not just about Intel's missteps, Deirdre. It's about, you know, a strategic, uh, I would say, perception that they're they're no longer a player. They're less of a player. I mean, this is one of the biggest earnings news I can remember in recent history.
11: Yeah, and it is just an enormous drop now. I might argue that it's not really about this quarter. It's not even really about guidance or the seven nanometer chip It's about its long-term game here. Um, Already, it had been falling behind AMD. You see those share prices going in drastically different directions this year. But its inability to get that 7 nanometer out is really critical because um, it's not just this chip, but they have struggled with previous generations, which has let AMD catch up and take market share. So the question going forward is, intel its strength has really been in designing and manufacturing its own chips but those manufacturing processes are coming under question now analysts and investors are saying should it be doing both and you know we spoke to bob swan this morning on squawk alley and he said that he takes responsibility for what's been going on even though he hasn't been CEO over many generations of different chips. So I think there are some really critical questions mm. that the market is asking right now, and that's why you see the stock down more than 15 percent today. It's about its long-term future here and its yeah. placement in the chip landscape.
2: Mike, how much pressure do you think is on management right now from the market and from investors?
9: Uh, there's a lot. I mean, the street is uh, really very vociferous in kind of saying that this is a major black eye strategically. Um, the stock now is extremely cheap, if you believe the numbers. That's the thing. I mean, it hasn't always paid to buy the value play in big tech sectors, and that's been proven out by Intel versus things like NVIDIA. But I do think right now that just based on the valuation alone, it shows you that expectations are being beaten down very low. Nobody really is on board for the longer-term turnaround. Maybe that's the opportunity for a relatively new CEO.
2: You know, Mike. It also some of us can be a little ho hum about earnings season, but man, I mean, you get a report like this one, and it's like it, cha- it changes the world. It changes everything you think you know about it.
9: That's right. Um, I mean, especially for a company where you, I think people thought they they had a, a fix on what they might hear, but you know, a six month delay in a fast moving competitive you know market share game like this is uh, is something that really did come as uh, something of a shock, and that's why you see this sort of give up trade in the share. Quick
11: last word, Deirdre. It, it, and. Th- Some analysts question if that's really going to be a six-month delay given the cascading issues for previous chips. But the last thing I would say, Kelly, is perhaps Intel doesn't tell us a lot about future earnings because this is a very Intel-specific problem. Some of the bright spots actually reflected quite well on the tech landscape as a whole. So I wouldn't read too much into this in terms of the big earnings that we have on deck in the weeks ahead.
2: No, I just mean that it's a reminder that, hey, maybe we shouldn't do away with quarterly reports. You know, maybe they do have some really valuable information for investors. This one was a game changer. Mm -hmm. Uh, How about shares of American Express? They're also lower after their earnings day, but not nearly as much. That credit card giant reported an 85 percent drop in quarterly profit. said spending by Amex cardholders dropped 34 percent. Its core business consumers simply aren't traveling and they're spending less amid virus lockdowns. Amex did note that spending volumes, Kate, were on the rise in may and june after bottoming out in april
7: yeah and another thing that they mentioned too was that small business spending was a little bit more resilient and i'm not surprised to hear that because if you think about small businesses in this landscape i think a lot of them are getting creative perhaps they took out ppp loans we're going to talk next hour about uh businesses that already burned through some of that money so i think that they need to rely on lines of credit that they have so I wasn't surprised to hear that, but it was a potential bright spot in an otherwise really, really challenging quarter. Well,
2: and it's like kind of a bright spot, but with a dark lining, right? Because you know, true. In a way, they're using the the cards because they have to, and you just have to wonder about what that means for Amex going forward. And I mean, a lot of the other banks have talked about this, but the you know potential losses they might face if they you know if companies can't make good on that.
7: Yeah, yeah that's was, right. And if nobody's actually going yeah, out know, traveling actually, and spending, I mean,
2: yeah. Exactly. It's going to be harder to service. What were you going to say, Mike?
9: Oh, just that, um, you know, the credit losses, as bad as they were, were not quite as bad as expected. That was the upside in the earnings. So I do think it's unusual relative to other uh, consumer finance plays. It's really about the business spending comeback, the big companies uh, and all the rest. One interesting side note is inside of Amex is its payment network which looks very much like the visas and MasterCards and PayPal If you look at what the market is willing to pay for those companies, which don't have the credit risk, some people have made the case that Amex should get some credit for that. But right now, uh, they're saying, that's nah, it's obscured by all these other issues.
2: Yeah, fair enough. All right, let's talk about the retail wreck, which continues for luxury names. The big headline today is that bankrupt Neiman Marcus is leaving Manhattan's Hudson Yards just after just over a year there. Meanwhile, a mall owner is now making a bid to save the struggling Brooks brothers from a similar fate. Let's bring in CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Todd. Thomas who has the very latest. And Lauren, how much of a blow is this for Hudson Yards?
12: Yeah, no, it is it is kind of shocking. I, I think when you consider the size of this space and Neiman Marcus spanned multiple levels at the top of this mall and it, it's hardly been open a year. Um, and it's the sole anchor in this property. Now, a source um, you know, familiar with with its plans moving forward has told me that they are looking to bring in office space to, to replace this department store. Um, but again, consider this new environment that we're in with the with the pandemic and not sure exactly what the what the need might be for that much office space moving forward. But but certainly, you know, Neiman did yeah. take up a sizable sizable portion at this property.
2: And Deirdre, this is where a lot of the big tech companies are. I think Facebook has a big presence there. Some of the others. I mean, this I I don't know what they'd have to offer. I assume that they would be offering some pretty generous terms to get people into that office space if they're now looking for that as a replacement to Neiman.
11: (laughs) Right, Kelly. Precisely the companies like Facebook that have said that they're going to let a portion of their workforce work remotely indefinitely. So uh, that's interesting. I can't help but draw the comparison, of course, to Amazon, which we often do against the retailers. But just firing on all cylinders Reporting next week, I'm interested because their physical sales stores, even though that's mostly grocery, that's Whole Foods, actually saw an uptick for the first time really significantly last quarter, up about 8 percent. Does that continue? Do they continue to build their physical presence as traditional retailers, mall owners continue to struggle?
2: Yeah. And Lauren, back to the uh, Brooks Brothers story as well that we mentioned, I mean, there you have and we talked about this last week, but a mall owner uh, potentially coming to the rescue here. How likely is it, do you think?
12: Exactly. Yeah. So, so they have been named, uh, like you said, Simon Property Group and Authentic Brands. This duo. They're the stalking horse bidder, um, offering three hundred five million dollars to keep uh, more than one hundred and twenty five locations open for business. Now, this is is not a done deal. Um, I actually spoke to another licensing firm, uh, WHP Global, that. Um, They said they're looking to make a bid as well. Um, And there's a court date uh, set later in August, you know, to see if this goes through. But but certainly, I mean, I think Simon is is a serious player in this space and is increasingly, like we discussed earlier, is increasing, increasingly looking to do more deals um, to rescue some of these brands. Yeah. And we talked to Nate Forbes about
2: it. He's another mall owner and he loved it. He thought it was a brilliant concept. Mike, do you think I'm too bearish on the cities and the future of cities? I mean, this kind of fits with what we were just talking to Richard Florida about.
9: It does. Um, I think long term, it's very, very difficult to project out whether, in fact, there's going to be an enduring abandonment of cities in the in the nearer term. I mean, Hudson Yards was years in the making. It was already pushing kind of the fringe, adding capacity in office and retail in a part of Manhattan that was not as well trafficked. So now you're going to have a, a greater vacancy situation. And so it's obviously become tougher uh, for them to make the numbers work on there. I think in terms of living in cities, it you know tell me the price. If in fact it gets cheaper, then there will be a demand response as things uh, more normalize. I, think. I
2: see everybody nodding in agreement there. All right, Lauren, thank you. We appreciate it. You can read more on CNBC.com on the road ahead for retail. And finally, shares of Boston Beer Company. Well, here's a positive uh, performer today. They're sharply higher. The maker of Sam Adams and Twisted Tea is up 20% after a surprise earnings beat, a 42 42% spike in revenue. Uh, They also reported a huge jump in sales to retailers, which are up 46 percent, in part thanks to demand for its truly hard seltzer. And CEO Dave Berwick said, quote, the growth of the truly brand and truly hard lemonade continues to grow beyond our expectations. And uh, Kate, I mean, we just last weekend someone pulled out this twisted tea. It's like, I I mean, I'm not this is the these are the new growth categories. Good for them for figuring this out.
7: I mean, they really are, and I know analysts have kind of compared the switch to these hard seltzers and spiked lemonades and iced teas to the switch to light beer generations ago, right? <laughs> it's something that a younger consumer is really looking toward. I think particularly in the summer, you know, that's something that I know a lot of people uh, younger than me, but within my family group, <laughs> like to tend uh, to gravitate towards these spiked seltzers. And another thing too, they gave guidance and better than expected guidance. Who is giving guidance right now? Right. Uh, one of the few companies who's actually heard this from, you know, but they're Really, really optimistic about the future of what this means for the brand. And it's a trend that seems to be here to stay. We've been talking about it for a while now.
2: Yeah. Mike, what do you think about the stock price?
9: I mean, I was going to say we can we can all agree that they're actually performing very well. They're winning market share. Clearly, this is a buzzy uh, category, so to speak. But yeah, look at that <laughs> angle what's happened in the last month or so. I think folks have flocked to it as a newfound uh, kind of younger consumer shutdown play. I did the obligatory search at what the Robinhood account exposure is to this one. And it's tracked the stock stock vertically, as you might (laughs) expect. So, you know, you can say things are going well at the company and still wonder if the stock price is overshot.
2: And, Deirdre, by the way, this stock is up 21.5% today. Deirdre, this is a a bi-coastal phenomenon, right? It's as popular out west as it is out here. (laughs)
11: Um, you know, what I couldn't say because I have not been out in so long and I don't drink hard <laughs> seltzer. Um, but I do. I, I'm assuming it is. You know, what I think is interesting, though, is some hard seltzer is better than others. You look at the stock price of Hazard Bush and some other um, of the drink makers, and it is a drastically different picture. So we can't put it all on hard seltzer, but perhaps Boston Beer's distribution model as well. It really um, has taken off in its Quite um, amazing to see the difference between you know a Moslin Corzor and hasler Bush here. Yeah, look at Tapa
2: versus Sam. All right, guys, thank you all. We appreciate it, Deirdre. We'll try to get you, you know, out a little bit in the next couple of weeks. Maybe come back with some reporting <laughs> on those. Trends. I'm not drinking
11: hard seltzer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> wait, okay. Before we, go, why the <laughs> Me animosity? Either,
11: why wait? <laughs> what, what is with the animosity,
2: Deirdre, against hard seltzer? I mean, I don't think it tastes good, but I haven't really tried it. Go I don't ahead. know.
11: I guess I just see it as a fad. I, I haven't bought into it yet, so I don't know. But I, sh- I shouldn't judge until I've tried it. Absolutely.
2: Uh, Deirdre, Mike, and Kate, thank you all very much today. Uh, that does it for Rapid Fire. Coming up with retailers going cashless and people investing with day trading apps. Digital finance is booming. We were just talking about Robinhood. We'll tell you all about the stunning numbers next. And as we head to break, take a look at the Nasdaq Biotech ETF, the IBB. It's on pace for its fourth negative session in a row. It's set to break a three-week uh, win streak as well. We'll keep an eye on it. It's down a little more than 2% right now. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Consumer adoption of digital finance has surged during the pandemic as more people forego cash and get into day trading with apps like Robinhood. Kate Rooney joins me now with some impressive new numbers. Kate
13: Hey, Kelly, some were predicting this level of digital finance adoption happening over years. It's only taken a matter of months now during COVID. That's according to startup Plaid, which connects consumer bank accounts to apps like Venmo and Robinhood. They shared some new numbers from across their customer base. Take a look. This year, investing apps have seen a 300% surge in new users. Across Plaid's top customers, they saw a 42% increase In users, that was from March to April of this year compared to the prior year. From January of last year to May 2020, the number of active users across Plaid's fintech customers increased 71%. They did, however, see a slowdown in sectors like consumer lending. A lot of people were forced in this direction by COVID. Consumers can no longer walk into a bank branch and are looking for apps to download instead. We spoke to Plaid CEO Zach Perret this morning on Squawk Alley. He says he expects this behavior to persist even after the pandemic. They're forecasting fintech adoption doubling year over year by the end of 2020. Kelly. It's
2: interesting. And We also saw them playing a role in just in some cases distributing PPP
13: funds. That's right. You had Square, PayPal, Cabbage, who's a, a partner of Plaid. And they say that those loans tend to be smaller. They tend to serve a different customer than the Wall Street banks. You take Wells Fargo, for example. So Zach Pray this morning said that it is putting pressure on some of the bigger players that might not have a digital offering right now.
2: Right. And it's a good foothold for them uh, as well to grow. Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rooney with the new numbers there. And still ahead, mortgage rates hit a record low. And while home buyers may cheer about that, there is a major catch for the banks. We'll explain next. Welcome back to The Exchange as housing continues its hot streak. Mortgage rates hit a record low overnight and investors are taking notice. The home builder ETF, the XHB, is up now almost 50 percent in the last three months. Returns are similar for the home construction ETF, the ITB. It's also having some monster gains. Let's drill down on what this means for both housing and for the banks. Diana Olick has the real estate impact for us. And Wilfred Frost talks about why it could put pressure on banks' profitability. Diana, let's start with you.
0: Yeah, Kelly, just when you think we can't go any lower, 2.87% on the 30-year fixed. According to Mortgage News Daily, that's about a full percentage point lower than a year ago, and that's an average, so you might even be able to get a little lower. Now, remember, if you can shave at least 75 basis points off your current rate, It's generally worth it to refinance. More than 15 million borrowers currently can, according to Black Knight, and save close to $300 a month on their payments. Low rates are helping fuel sales of newly built homes, which jumped nearly 14 percent for the month in June, to the highest level since the Great Recession, nearly 7 percent higher annually. And the supply of new homes for sale fell to the lowest in seven years, which helped builders raise prices a bit. Even the number of new homes sold but not even started jumped dramatically, meaning builders will really need to ramp up the pace of production if they want to keep selling at this pace and especially with these record low mortgage rates. Kelly? 287 I just want to make sure I heard you right. I mean, that, 2.87%? Yes. And 2. Now you 8. think that's 8. widely 7%. available? Mortgage News Daily. Wow. It's an average, which means some people will get over and some people will get under. And you do have to have 20% down. That's for, you know, your your good borrowers with good credit. But... That's the average. That is amazing. Diana, stay right
2: there. Wilf, uh, that kind of raises the important issue, which you're going to delve into, which is what does that mean in terms of profitability for the banks?
14: Right. And some people even been suggesting, does this mean they're going to lose money on some of these uh, mortgage? But the key thing to remember here, Kelly, is that banks borrow short and lend long or put a better way. Mortgage rates uh, based off the long end of the curve. You'll take out a 10-year, a 20-year, or a 30-year mortgage, as Diana just said. But when you deposit money into your bank's savings account, you'll probably be offered by them a one-year interest rate uh, at best, which is obviously at the moment close to zero, even lower than that 2.87% that Diana just said. So banks certainly prefer a higher interest rate curve and a steeper interest rate curve, which produces a bigger margin opportunity for them but today, even if mortgage rates feel that they're incredibly low, 2.87%, they're still above the Fed funds rate, which is zero. Uh, and just to that idea of whether mortgages would ever be a loss leader for banks to attract customers, the answer to that is no, because there's always a risk that a loan won't be repaid. So they're not going to write that loan in the first place if it would lose the money Even if it was repaid uh, as planned, Uh, they might do that sort of thing in other areas, like on the deposit side. You know, move your checking account to us with a deposit of five thousand dollars and we'll give you five hundred dollars cash back. But they wouldn't do that on the loan side, on the mortgage side. There's too much other risks uh, involved with it.
2: It's interesting, though, Will, if it does raise this question of whether they really want to be in the mortgage lending business right now. I mean, remember when Wells suspended uh, jumbo mortgages? Um, And you just get this feeling that maybe they're reluctant to to really make these loans.
14: Well, Wells is a special uh, case at the moment because they've got this Fed asset cap imposed on them. So there's a limit to what they can do at the moment. And so if they're going to start to increase their assets, a loan, of course, is an asset on their balance sheet. They need to make sure that it's going to be uh, worth their while to to do so. But you put wells out. Yes, it's fair to say that if prices drop, obviously the business they're doing is less attractive. But two offsets I'd say to that. Like uh, in any business, if the price of your product drops, you can offset that by doing higher volumes. And and that is happening, of course, at the moment, certainly in the mortgage space, not so much in corporate lending. Uh, The other point is, is, again, as Diana said, a lot of people have floating rate mortgages. So uh, if they issue it now at a low rate and someone's got a a floating rate mortgage, then clearly as rates go back up again, uh, they'll they'll start to get a a better price on their product uh, when that happens.
2: Sure. If that ever happens, Diana, we're at another near low uh, again overnight in the 10 year. My final question is, do you think we're going to find a floor on mortgage rates? So for people who say, well, wait a minute, should I wait till it goes sub two and a half percent or lower? I mean, do we start to kind of hit natural resistance at these levels?
0: Well, 2.5% would be the base, and that's something we wrote about today on CNBC.com if you want to read more about that. 2.5% is the current level it could hit with the bonds that are out there. Remember, we say that mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury, but they actually follow mortgage-backed bonds, and investors in mortgage-backed bonds need to get some kind of return on it. And the current bonds out there would suggest that we could only get really for the borrower as low as 2.5%. But there's still room to run if we're at 287 And remember, you can save up to $200 a month on average if you have more than a percentage point higher than the current rate now obviously it's a pain to do a refi but it is getting a little easier more of it is going online <laughs> and you can do a refi in your backyard because i closed that way a couple of weeks ago online <laughs> your backyard very,
2: very appropriate i will quick last word well quick. i'm
14: just going to say the other point is as diana said at the top uh, in, in terms of whether it's worth refinancing or not it tends to need to see Uh, the interest rate fall by 0.75%. The very fact that that's even a factor highlights that there are other fees involved when you do refinance upfront one-off costs that the banks will extract from you, which, again, is just another way that shows this isn't loss-making yet for the banks, even if it's not as profitable as they'd like it to be.
2: Amazing. Can't believe we're sitting here talking about a 2.5% mortgage. Thank you both. Great stuff. Diana Olick, Wilfred Frost, we greatly appreciate it. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
11: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger.
6: Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.